But for me, it took me a long time before I was comfortable enough with my own skill set before I wanted to go out and ask somebody else for their capital. So that's not everyone. That's that's just how I look at things. I want to know that I, I'm an expert in my field before I take on somebody else's capital and apply that to my real estate business. Now, there's a lot of people that go out and just syndicate with very little experience or no experience in real estate. Um, and there's some, no, some of them are successful, some of them are not. Um, I just felt like if I was taking on the responsibility of bringing on cash from friends and family and presenting them with opportunities that I needed to be an expert in my field. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today I have the privilege of interviewing Brian Green, the man who took a Verizon store from zero revenue to all the way to $10 million in sales. And now you might think, well, Matt, I'm not here for that. I'm here for real estate. But that's what we're going to be talking about because he knows how to raise capital. He knows how to do the development process. He knows a lot of things about real estate as well. And they now have $2.5 million a year in real estate-related revenue. So if you're interested in growing your real estate business, this is going to be the show, the episode to listen to. And we're particularly going to dive into the development process, how he moved from some of the smaller things to some of the bigger things. So stay with us. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. And take us into it, man. What has led you all the way to development? Hey, Matt, how are you doing? Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, so I think for, for us, our company development was just kind of a natural progression. Uh, we spent a lot of time working on smaller multifamily properties and redeveloping them um, and like sort of like a heavy value add strategy. So it was focused a lot on construction to begin with. But then the evolution of the company as we kept getting bigger and bigger, looking for new opportunities, kind of getting dissatisfied with what was available in the market. Um, now, before we go on, yeah. development or construction, was that in your past? Did you have any experience prior to going into it? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. All right. Continue so on. I, yeah. My business uh, background is, is just that. I, I was a finance and marketing major. Um, so, uh, you know, I have an operational background in business. So the ground up construction or even construction in general, uh, I always looked at it as a business problem. Um, you know, managing people, managing budgets, it, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, if you're just overseeing it, you don't really need to know how to swing a hammer or, or you know, uh, saw wood or any of that stuff. A lot of people shy away from construction due to the, I mean, they got these high costs for the people that are doing it. Now, were you hiring out third-party companies to do all the work or were you guys bringing these people in-house? Yeah. So at first, uh, the projects were smaller. So we would hire, you know, a crew of uh, like general contractor. He might have a crew of three to five guys and they would do a little bit of everything. I like to steer towards the guys that were proficient electricians and plumbers, and they would do kind of do a little bit of everything and be really good at it. So smaller crews, and then we kind of expanded out over time to start bringing on some of our own internal contractors um, to, to where we are now, where we do a mix. We do some subcontracting, and we have some guys that work specifically for us. Give us the, the highlights, the, the goods and the bads of, in, of going in-house, right? Like, did you guys go in-house too early, too late, just right? If so, give us some metrics that kind of tell us or tell a person who goes in development what might be a good path. Yeah, so I think that the um, the evolution of bringing them in-house, and we've only done that in specific circumstances. So like right now we have a, a highly skilled contractor that does like the finishing work, and we have another guy that's a heating and cooling uh, contractor. So the, the benefit is there's never any change orders, right? These people are only doing work for you. So like they'll tackle anything that comes across their way. Um, you know, the, you get into these old buildings that we're renovating, and you can never plan for everything. 
So these guys are adaptable. They're fine doing with what, you know, whatever. Whereas if you're hiring subcontractors, um, as soon as something goes off script from the scope of work, you know, you're going to get a change order and that increases your budget and that slows down the project. So there's, there's a greater flexibility and control over the project when you have them in-house versus subs. Now, the downside is if you have them in-house, there's no break in, um, there's no time where you're not paying them, right? You're consistently, you have payroll, right? <laughs> right. So uh, the subcontractors, when the job ends, they're done and you stop paying them till the next one. But uh, in-house, you constantly have to find work uh, in order to justify the, the continuation of their pay. So that, there's a little bit of give and take there. That's why we're kind of trying to strike a, a balance between the two. As a mathematician, like I can't help but desire the formula, right? For what that balance is. So like we interviewed a guy a long time ago who, when he was thinking about a new business vertical, anytime his business created $150,000 of payments to a particular industry or, or subset, he created yeah. a vertical from it. Do you have something like that where it's like, it's X amount of labor or X amount of revenue spent to a contractor before you bring them in house? Um, not necessarily. I think it's, um, it's also, it's not, there is a math component to it. There's a financial angle to it, but I think there's a, a human angle to it too. And a, and a relationship. Um, so the guys that we've brought in so far, these are guys that were subs for us before, and we've kind of naturally had that progression. You work with them over extended periods of time and you kind of can see that your core values match with what they're exhibiting. Um, cause you know, if, if you're going to bring somebody on like that, you can't just bring in anybody. It's gotta be somebody that's an exact fit for what your culture is. Um, and somebody that's going to kind of buy into the company's growth trajectory and that whole mindset, which is very unique among contractors, right? Usually they're like, finish the job, move on to the next job, move on to the next job. Uh, so I, I think there's a balance there. Um, but again, yeah, we have to have enough volume of work. So for me, uh, I'm kind of looking at it as long as we have a, enough renovation work ongoing that we can justify the expansion and we're never going to get in a spot where, like I said before, we're paying them without having work, then let's keep adding them because it's, it's cheaper for us to have them internally than it is to hire outs outside. Now let's, let's consider it like a relationship, right? Like, so right now this person's like a free agent, right? Dating everybody. Mm -hmm. And you want to bring them in just for you. Like, is it, is it usually a conversation that you're having with them or is it, are you waiting for them like to make the move? And, 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 and what's that like? No, I mean, um, I'm fairly aggressive in our hiring practices. So if I, if I see potential in somebody and I like their work quality, then I'll just bring it up to them. And usually the selling point is, you know, imagine if you're an independent contractor, you're, you're a GC, you might have a couple guys working with you, you might be on your own. You're constantly out looking for business, right? That's a huge part of your, your, your career. And most contractors don't like that aspect where they have to go out and constantly sell themselves to the next client, the next client, the next client. So if they have a good customer like us that takes care of them, they know how to work with them, they know the systems, and we can give them steady, reliable work on a consistent schedule, then that's the selling point. It's really a, it's a quality of life uh, a selling point to them because um, it kind of streamlines their operations and, and simplifies everything while still paying them basically what they're going to make out on their own. So if you're going to pay them what they're going to make out on their own, where, where is the savings to you? The savings to us is because we don't have to constantly go out and bid projects. Um, yeah. We can't yet. Yeah, and uh, we avoid all change orders. Like I said before, um, you know, if, uh, and especially like, for example, the heating and cooling gentleman that works for us, you know, in the, in the winter, I'm in the Northeast in New York. So there's constantly heating outages and, and uh, my thermostat's not working. If I'm calling an outside HVAC guy, I mean, that's an easy 250 bucks every time he shows up at the building plus materials and whatever, if he has to come back, um, if we have our own guy in house, it's as simple as saying, 
hey, uh, you're in the middle of a renovation project. Can you just drive a mile away, fix this heating issue, and then come back? And, you know, we're just paying him his hourly rate, you know, to do so. It might cost us $100 instead of 250 every time that happens. Do you find, too, that with contractors, like, they give you a great price up front, but the change orders is like a completely different pricing scheme, or, or do they usually stay fairly consistent? Yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's something we've tackled internally. Uh, so my brother is my partner, and he runs all of our, our projects. So over time, our scope of work has become more and more detailed. Um, I find that the more detailed your scope of work is, the, the less change orders you're ever going to get. And at some level, contractors almost bank on the fact that the scope of work is, is too generic because they can always refer back to it and say, well, it wasn't listed in here. This isn't what we're supposed to be doing. Even though you and I both know that, like we talked about this project, and this is clearly something you have to do in order to do the next thing. Um, so you kind of get into that gray area. But uh, I think it's most important to have your scope of work and your contract and everything up front uh, so you have appropriate pricing. And then that kind of eliminates the change, change orders. Awesome. So let's start diving into the development process as a whole. So essentially, obviously you're dealing with, you know, cities and municipalities and so on and so forth. Like walk mm -hmm. us through maybe, first of all, a high level overview, like what's the development process. And then maybe we can get down into the, the more of the details. Sure. So, uh, so I'm, I'm a broker. So I see everything that comes across the MLS. I've got relationships with people. So the number one thing is, is finding your site, right? So you got to find a site that actually uh, allows you to build what you're looking to build. So in our world, I'm a multifamily guy. I'm trying to get a certain amount of density of apartments on, onto a parcel. So the first step is to uh, find the parcel, right? And then you check uh, zoning in that town because every town is different and they have their zoning maps. Usually the zoning will, will tell you what's allowed to be built on that property. So immediately you know this is allowed and if you want anything different, you have to go get a variance, which is more challenging, sometimes impossible. So that, that's the first step. Like what, what's my path of least resistance here? <laughs> so so the, uh, the current project we're working on now, we actually, we figured out that it was immediately available uh, and allowed to have 36 units because it was two, just over two acres. So that's the first start. So once you know the basic calculation of what's allowed, um, we reached out to a civil engineer who took a deeper dive into the zoning and confirmed because then he'll draw in setbacks on the property. And then your two and a half acres turns into like a, three-quarter of an acre box after you get all the setbacks drawn in them and where they'll actually let you build. Um, and then he'll do the math for you and say, confirm basically, yeah, yeah I think you can get 36 units in here. And then from there, we go to, uh, you go to contract. And when you're going to contract with the seller, uh, I always like to try to write the contract up contingent upon approvals so that we're not actually purchasing, purchasing the property until we know for sure we can build this. The last thing you want to do is end up with a, a, a piece of land that's worth a million, two million dollars that you can't build on. So um, you want to get it under contract. You want to have enough contingencies in there. You want to have enough timeline so that you know you can get approvals with the city. Um, and at that point, you're only exposed by your deposit, right? Which is probably, if you write up your contract, right, is refundable also if you don't get approvals. So so that's kind of the first, first wave of activity, I would say. Awesome. So you write up, you write up the contract, make sure that everything's, you know, uh, contingent upon proper zoning. So the process then goes, obviously you do basic due diligence, just check with the city or County. And then from there, if it seems good, but like, do you, is it, do you only go to civil engineer in that case right away if it's unclear or is it a hundred percent of the time you go to the civil engineer? I mean, I would go to them hundred percent of the time because you don't know what you don't know. Um, they're going to analyze like egress and, and uh, ingress and, uh, you know, they're going to look at and see where the utility lines are. They're going to, they're going to know all of that. Right. So um, I would do that 
um, on a cursory basis. I mean, you can, you can go to a civil engineer and pay them a couple thousand dollars to do a, a preliminary high level analysis. They're not going to give you like designs or drawings or anything like that, but they'll at least uh, confirm your assumptions or, 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 uh, or say that are not possible. So I, I do like to do that because I don't want to waste a whole lot of time with the seller. Like there's no point in trying to get his contract at the right price if you don't even know what you can build yet. So you're willing to spend 2000 or so dollars to do that before you even have a contract with the seller? Well, yeah. I mean, everything's relative. If you're talking about a project's uh, land that costs over a million dollars in construction, that might cost $10 million. I mean, 1000 or $2,000 up front is kind of uh, you know negligible. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's get deeper into this. So how, like, do you have any contact with the seller or any semblance that a deal come together first, or is it literally just, I, I like this piece of land. And then, and if that's the case, how many of these do you need to do before you usually land, land a contract? I, I feel like the, it depends. Like sometimes the property is uh, listed and then your relationship is with the broker at that point. Right. So then you, yep. you know what the price is going in. And then uh, for unlisted property, you're probably talking to the seller. So that's a little bit of different dynamic. Um, so, you know, it's, um, I, for me, it, it depends on what, like, so if you're building apartments, like we do apartments, how many can I build? Right. So then I know what my construction costs are going to be on a generic per square foot basis. And I know when I'm finished, what my rents are going to be on a generic basis, right. Cause I know the market. So I can already tell you what the property is going to be worth when we're done building it. So then you back your way into it, right. Take off all the construction, all the soft costs, and then you narrow down to what you can afford to pay for the land. Um, in order to achieve the return requirements uh, you want to get, which is obviously the most important part. There's no point in doing all of this work and building this structure <laughs> if, you, if you're not gonna make any money <laughs> or if you're negative on, on your cash balance. Uh, so you, you kind of back your way into that and then you say, all right, well, they want 1.5 million for the land that works out to this amount per lot or this amount per unit. Does this make sense? And then you as a math guy, I mean, that's, that's if the math doesn't work for me, just like it probably does, same, same situation for you. I don't move forward. Like you can't move forward if the math doesn't work. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and got an inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us, and let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. 100%. Now, I mean, in your business, right, with the development of these big multifamily complexes, you're heavily, your your profit's heavily tied to construction costs. And we've been in a pretty inflationary period where, you know, material costs go up so much. How much of that 
factoring do you do in the bid? Like, hey, prices could, because by the time you get the contract to the time that you build, I mean, it's not like a two week process, right? I mean, it's months or years before right. you get all the approvals. So we're, we try to be as conservative as possible. So we, we come up with what the actual number is that we think we can get. And then we always add some margin of error to it. So it might be 10%, it might be 20% if it's ground up construction. We always have to have that buffer in there. Now, does that always work in our favor? No, because you know we started some projects two years ago, right before construction costs started escalating and we went over budget. So the good news is though, that during that same period, rents also went up more than everyone expected, right? So you make, you make up for it a little bit on, on that too. So if you're conservative on the construction costs by giving yourself a buffer and you're conservative on your pro forma rents, um, usually those things kind of work themselves out, right? Because the, the best case scenario is you're on budget and your rents also still went up, right? And then your profitability is even higher. Um, but I feel like if you're conservative on both ends, then usually it will work out in a, in kind of a plus or minus field where, where the numbers still make sense for you. And I really like this because I mean, the type of business that you're doing is a, is a it's, it, there's a lot of risk to it. I mean, there's a big spend, big raise, all those things, time process, et cetera. And so the, usually the more risky the project is, the more conservative you should be. I mean, I know on some of the bigger renovation projects, we haven't done, you know, huge multifamily, but uh, you know, there was times where everything went wrong and we thought we were going to have the deal of the century. And all of a sudden it was like, we just made a modest profit on this thing. Yeah. Um, have you guys lost money yet or you guys still hundred percent in the positive? So we haven't necessarily lost money yet, but so, you know, our business model is we, when we're doing renovations, we're doing it on buildings that we're going to keep long-term. So yeah. time has a way of making up for any type of uh, mistakes on the front end. So there's been times where, we might've spent 20% more on the renovation budget than we thought we were going to. Um, you know, so all that means in our world is our, because once we're finished with the property, we go back and refinance it, right? To pull a lot of our own capital out and then we're going to manage it long-term and we're going to hold it. So if we go over budget or things end up being a little bit off of what we expected, it just means we can't recapitalize hundred percent of our, our money. We can't pull it all out. So if we can pull out 50 to 75% of it, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's, still really good. I mean, you've got a building that you have equity in, maybe a little bit less equity than you thought, but it's now a brand new building that you're going to cash flow and you're going to keep long-term. Yeah. And it's still like this huge net worth growth, you know? So like, if you think in retirement terms, I mean, when that thing pays itself off, you got millions, tens of millions, whatever the case is of, of equity in, in time. Now it sounds like uh, a lot of these projects you've done so far, you guys have personally done. I mean, it, you're kind of moving in a direction now of syndication. Was that, did you syndicate from the beginning or did you do some yourself first? No. So from the beginning, uh, we self-funded. So originally it was just myself. I started the company in 2015 and I was just self-funding from the proceeds of our, of my former business. Um, you can do only do that so long until the, the price points start escalating a little bit. Um, so, it, it, you know, I think three years later, my brother came out as a partner we continued to sell fund because now we had both of our capital combined. Um, and then we were using private notes from investors um, to kind of bridge like almost like a mezzanine debt on the construction. So we would borrow 80% of the costs on the, on the purchase and the renovation. And then we'd use private notes from friends and family to give it a, give us like an extra 10% worth of debt. So we only had to put like 10% of the deal in, in, into uh, the project. And then when we refinanced upon stabilization, we were able to pay off the construction loan, pay off the, private investors. And now we have the property hundred percent fast forward to today where we're doing larger ground up projects, um, which require way more capital up front. 
So that's when we got to syndication was the answer. We wanted to do bigger projects and we wanted to do more ground up development. Um, and, you know, our liquidity can only go so far. So on this current project, we started syndicating. Yes. What would you say in your perspective, experience, skill sets, what is necessary for someone to really have before they should consider doing either a syndication or, or ground up development? Well, um, you're asking somebody that's very practical and logical, and I, I need to follow the steps, right? So for me, it took me a long time before I was comfortable enough with my own skill set before I wanted to go out and ask somebody else for their capital. So that's not everyone. That's that's just how I look at things. I want to know that I, I'm an expert in my field before I take on somebody else's capital and apply that to my real estate business. Now, there's a lot of people that go out and just syndicate with very little experience or no experience in real estate. Um, and there's some, some of them are successful, some of them are not. Um, I just felt like if I was taking on the responsibility of bringing on cash from friends and family and presenting them with opportunities that I needed to be an expert in my field. Yeah. So going back to the development process, I mean, there's a large component of dealing with the municipalities. What is your process for, you know, giving yourself the best chance of success? Um, well, um, to some extent you have to play the game. Um, so everyone has, everyone that works in the municipality, um, from the secretary to the mayor, they all have their own initiatives, right? And they have their own viewpoint of a project. So you'll find that people in the planning department look at things one way, people in the building department look at things completely different. And then the people on the city council might have a completely different opinion on what's going on. Um, so there's lots of lots of people with varying opinions and you kind of have to navigate the waters there. Um, generally, we have good projects that they're supportive of. And then there's kind of, but sometimes, you know, you can't control what you can't control. So sometimes there's neighbors that don't like the project. Sometimes, you know, the building department gives you a hard time about like specific drawings or it takes three months to get a permit. So you have to be flexible. You can't get frustrated. You kind of have to just keep working your way through the system, um, going to a million different meetings and planning board discussions. And then, uh, you know, at the end of the rainbow, if you're, if you're persistent, you need to be persistent. That's one thing. Um, and you have to be level-headed, you know, you just kind of work through it. And at the end, hopefully you get approval. And if you don't get approval, I feel like somewhere along the path, you should have known that you weren't going to get it. Because they'll mm -hmm. basically tell you without giving you approvals or without you know declining your 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 application, you should have a really good feeling once you get into it on whether your project's going to get approved or not. Well, a lot of times too, like I mean, are you guys obviously have a civil engineer on your side, but like, is there any other professionals that you bring in to help with that process of either putting plans together or or dealing with the municipalities? Absolutely, or is it all you guys. Um, no, absolutely. We bring on uh, a full team. So we have uh, an architect, we have the civil engineer. We brought on for this current project, we brought on an outside financial analyst to help us with the, the construction budgeting and the debt sourcing. Um, we hired a construction manager who had like 30 plus years in construction to kind of just work on our team and, and tell us what we didn't know, <laughs> for the lack of a better word. This goes back to that same mentality, <coughs> excuse me, where I need to know everything there is to know and I need to be an expert, right? Especially if I'm using my capital and other people's capital, I'm going to protect every, every avenue of risk that I possibly can and make sure that we know everything and where we have all the boxes checked. 
So if that means overpaying on the front end for a whole bunch of consultants that are going to make sure our project is 100% successful, then that's what we're going to do. Um, you know, if it was just my own money or just my brother's money, maybe we would take a little bit more risk along that path, but not when we're taking on outside capital. So we have the a full team. We hire the best of the best and to uh, ensure success for everybody. Yeah. And so if we walk along the process of a development and when these people get added, so you know, a deal's on the market, the price makes sense for you guys. You hire the civil engineer. Uh, he creates it and says, hey, this is possible. Yep. When does the architect come on? When does a financial analyst come on? And then when does a construction manager come on? So sh as soon as we knew that the project, the land was viable, I brought on the financial analyst um, and he started developing construction budgeting for us. And then I had a preliminary pro forma of what the Department of Complex was going to be once it was stabilized. And then he he did the front end work where he figured out what the construction work was going to be um, and put in all the soft costs and then the lending assumptions. So that was early on. So we hired him then. And then once, because we want to find out like, okay, yes, my my quick pro forma and underwriting says it's viable. Let's make sure it is. Let's bring somebody else on with a second set of eyes. And then if that works, then we got the property under contract at that point. And then we immediately went on to the architect because I think this probably varies in, in municipality and municipality, but in our town and the, most of the cities we work in, the engineers and the architects take the lead on presenting to the city councils and the planning boards. So you have to have them on board and they have to start developing, I mean, not blueprints, but there's, you know, renderings and all kinds of site plan uh, visuals that they're going to show to those boards to kind of work yourself through the process. Amazing. And so like what, what sort of time is elapsing usually in this? I mean, obviously like just give us that same flow, but as far as like how much time is generally elapsing? hundred percent contingent on what city you're in. <laughs> so, okay. so the, uh, you know, one city that we're working through right now, is Saratoga Springs, that's where, uh, that's where we operate mostly out of in upstate New York. Um, a simple building permit could take you three months. Um, but site plan approval, which we're going on, I, this current project I had under contract a year ago in June, and we still don't have 100% site plan approval. We're almost, we're almost 12 months in. <laughs> so if that, if that tells you anything, you know, our expectation is that uh, we hope to have that approval over the summer and then we start construction in the fall, but that's a long window. That's, you know, 15 months before you can get a shovel on the ground. Now, if you're going to uh, a different municipality, um, some places we can walk in and give them all of our information and they know we're very thorough and we do good work. We'll walk out the same day with a building permit. So, um, you know, that might not be ground up development, but that's like, we could be redeveloping a 20 or 30 unit complex and we get the permit the same day. Um, so hundred percent contingent on, on the location. So I want to talk a little bit about the why. So, I mean, obviously this has a lot more moving parts, a lot more people, a lot more risk. There's obviously got to be a bigger payday at the end of some kind to justify all this extra stuff instead of just buying maybe some single family house on the market. So give us a, a glimpse of like either some of the projects you've done or just like what's in store for someone that goes down this road if they do really well. You're talking about financially? Yeah, financially and, and otherwise, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, um, for me and my brother, uh, we're in this, we're in real estate and we're in development for long-term wealth accumulation, um, like a lot of people are. So. Um, you know, we feel like the bigger the project, the, the you know, we have certain return re requirements, call it 15, 20% stabilized cash on cash just for an easy number. Well, if you have that stabilized figure on a $10 million property, you know, that number is much bigger than it is on a $150,000 house. 
So it's the same exact process, right? Um, maybe it's riskier because you're putting more capital into it, but you're doing the same amount of work, uh, you know, at the end. <laughs> so if I'm going to use, if I'm going to use my, my time and my brother's going to spend his time and we're going to build out a whole property management company and do all this work, we might as well do it for the biggest upside that we can possibly do within, within the, our capacity. Um, so here's an example. So one of the medium sized apartment communities we did before we bought it for 1.265 It's probably a class C minus property, but it was in a B location, right? B plus location, exactly what you're looking for in redevelopment. So, um, we purchased the property. We brought the entire complex down to 0% occupancy, um, because we knew how much work it was going to require. We spent $1.1 million on renovations. And the property today, three years later, is worth $4 million. So if had we done that on in equity, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have 1.7 million in equity. So if we had done that on a duplex or a triplex, it would have been a fine project. But your profit and your equity might have been 100,000, 150,000. Instead, it's 1.7 million. So let's talk about someone that maybe they're successful in business or there's a very successful agent and they're looking for what's next. What is, if you're in their shoes, what is their first steps to moving in this direction? Do they do it on their own? Do they invest as an LP? How do, how do they, you recommend they get started? Uh, I am a huge proponent and I, I tell people this advice all the time. So when you're getting into real estate and real estate investing specifically, you need to decide Am I going to be a passive investor or am I going to build a company? Because there's, that's only, the only two paths are those two. So if you're going to go out and start buying properties on your own, you need to be prepared for the fact that either you're going to have to manage them, which means you're going to, it's now a job for you, or you're going to have to build out a team around you, which now means you have to get to a certain scale to pay for that. Or you're going to have to hire third-party management, and then you're just the asset manager. Um, so you really needed to define before you go out and buy something or invest, which path you want to take. Many people are extremely successful just picking sponsors or operators like myself or others that they can just invest in them passively, monitor their assets, and that's it. Um, other people like me, I, I'm more hands-on, I'm an operator. So I want to build the company and I want to build out the whole structure because I know I can add more value that way. But I think there's two distinct paths and you really got to decide which way you want to go. And it's, it's not as cut and dry as people might think it is. I think a lot of people just immediately assume I got to do it all, et cetera. But I could tell you from my personal experience, like I am much happier investing as an LP than mm -hmm. running those types of projects. Like I would much rather be podcasting, having conversations with you, picking people's brains and letting you guys go do the hard work of managing yeah. the contractors. Uh, you know, so kudos to you, man, for putting that together. What would you say? I mean, you've, you've grown a business from zero to 10 million in revenue. You've grown this real estate development company from zero to two and a half million in revenue. Like what has been your most like proud moment in business so far? Proud moment. Um, I, I think that, uh, well, to this point, it's probably the exit of my former company. Um, only because it was a longer, I was in that business for almost 12 years, kind of building it up from zero to the 10 million in, in annual revenues. Um, but now moving forward, I mean, that was in 2014 and I, I'm not a guy that likes to look in the rearview window. I want to look forward. So the new proudest moment is going to be this summer when we get this new plan, this new site plan approved and we can move on to our, our new development. Um, but I, I'm having more fun now doing the development world and real estate world than I ever was in my, uh, time owning the stores and the Verizon stores in the past. 
that that business, the retail business just became a kind of a grind over time. And this one, um, since we're all ever expanding and we're getting into new things and there's always new projects, uh, it's far more interesting and it keeps me more engaged, I think, than, than the former career. Um, but for the simple fact of the, of the exit, um, you know, that we had, um, I'd have to say that that was still the, the number one. What's your vision for your life and business in the next 12 to 18 months? So 12 to eight months, uh, 12 to 18 months. So I'm a big goal vision planner type. Um, so I can tell you pretty specifically where we want to get to. Uh, so we want mm -hmm. to increase our short-term portfolio to 20 units. Uh, we want to add an ex another 75 uh, existing apartments to our portfolio that we can redevelop. And we want to uh, have our current project approved and construction well underway, maybe even finished. And we want our second ground up, uh, another ground up development under contract, approved and started all within the next 12 months. Um, Incredible. So um, that, you know, that's the kind of the path. And I feel like I'm a big proponent of write it down, make it your goal. And those things happen. If you just, if you don't have that objective, then things tend not to, not to, not to be achieved. Yeah. Brian Green, thank you so much for sharing about your life and your business. Um, for those of you out there listening, maybe you're, you're hitting some success in your stride, maybe in residential real estate or investing in residential real estate, but you want to take it up to the next level into the commercial side of investing in, in, in residential. So write down something you learned from today's episode, share it with somebody you know, maybe that thing is investing as an LP, you know, being passive, or maybe it's actually getting in development. Uh, reach out to us, reach out to Brian Green so you can learn a little bit more about what he's got going on. Share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable. Because freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day, before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 